2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. So let's hear God's word today. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal-hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom lived and invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go up with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be, a burden, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. The king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant? So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon and as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. So I want to go now to chapter 15, verses 10 through 14. Let's see, right there. Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom went, 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Galoa. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance uh, and the, the blessing it's been uh, to continue to study uh, such great uh, stories from the Old Testament. God, we're reminded uh, more and more of your faithfulness. The more we look uh, throughout the history of your people, the more we are reminded that you have not chosen us because we are beautiful or many or holy or righteous but out of your incredibly gracious, sovereign plan, and your incredibly gracious, sovereign plan, you have chosen us to be your people. And so, God, we come today um, as beggars helping other beggars find food, coming, clinging uh, to the cross, clinging to your grace, uh, and inviting as many uh, as we can to join with us. Lord, bless us in your word, even as we open it now in Christ's name. Amen. We all are made a little bit different, and so what motivates us might be a little bit different. There's a, a, a variety of different motivational styles. Perhaps you grew up with an old-school football coach-type motivator in your life, whether literally a football coach or somebody else, whose form of motivation was mainly screaming and yelling at you. Anybody, anybody had those kind of motivators in your life? 
their goal was just to, uh, to scare you into it or, or, or shame you into it or whatever it was, make you mad probably, probably just make you mad enough that you wanted to play harder. Uh, in the business world, uh, maybe financial incentives are one of the main motivators. You know, something like uh, in sales, having some kind of uh, commission that you work off on. The motivation is the more you sell, the more you earn. And so the, the finances are the motivation. Maybe similarly, but different format, uh, some game show, some reality show, something where there's some big grand prize at the end that motivates the players to play their hardest and the, the strongest or whatever else to try to get to the end, to get the grand prize. Uh, a nonprofit organization raising money for, for children and maybe some, some developing world uh, country uh, may, may show you pictures, real pictures, not manipulative, but real pictures of, of children who are suffering, who are uh, in, in pain or in anguish, malnourished, uh, they're in poverty in some way, and so that it doesn't appeal to your anger or to your finances, but to your, to your emotions and to your heartstrings and to your humanity that you want to donate, to give, and so they motivate you in that way. Advertisers in seemingly, you know, a plethora of industries uh, will use lust as a motivator and put people in their advertisements with little clothing so that you, for whatever reason, do what they say because you'll look like that or do whatever they say uh, they're going to do. We can be motivated by all kinds of different things. Lust, fear, love, pride, shame, anger, sympathy, all kinds of different things. The Bible uses a number of different motivators, uh, one of the chief of which is God's kindness. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His grace is the theme that goes all the way through Scripture from beginning to end. Apart from God's grace, we wouldn't have anything past, well, we wouldn't even be here, and there'd be no, nothing after Genesis three and a half, you know, like that had just ended if there was no grace. So God's grace is incredibly strong and, and, and the primary motivator, I would think, uh, through all of Scripture. But today, our passage uses a different form of motivation. I told you we are taking a big section, 2 Samuel 13 all the way to 20. And, and the reason I'm doing that is I think there, there is a unified, this is a unified section, has a unified purpose to it. And, and part of it is, the, is what its motivation is or how it's motivating us, why, why this is recorded, why this whole section is recorded for us in Scripture. Last week, we saw the the the, the terrible pivot in King David's life as he sinned against Bathsheba in adultery and then murdered Bathsheba's former husband, Uriah. And so this whole section is the fallout. That's what I've called, just called this today, the fallout from that sin. We know a lot of great things about King David. He was a tremendous king. He is the king by which all other kings in Israel's history are measured. One of the only people, uh, the only person directly called a man after God's own heart. He's a king after God's own heart. He certainly had a, a tremendous place in redemptive history as part of the, the, the key redemptive line that God had in store to bring about his son, the Messiah, Christ Jesus. But even with as great as David was, there is a, a, an enormous amount of space given in the Bible to his sin and to the fallout that happens after his sin. We, we first met Daniel back, I mean Daniel, we haven't talked about Daniel all the time, why am I talking about Daniel? <laughs> David, back in 1 Samuel 16, and from there all the way to 2 Samuel 10, he has been this incredible hero. And we pointed out some mistakes, but on the whole, an incredible hero. But then there is a pivot at chapter 11, and from there all the way to chapter 24, so 14 chapters, 
we see a very different David. We see a very different man who is no longer uh, this, this incredible hero to be imitated in everything that he does. So as great as David was, why would the Bible... The Bible doesn't waste words. God, God invented words. God spoke the world into being through words. God doesn't waste words. Why would we have so many chapters that are the fallout from David's sin? What I think the, the central theme of this whole section, and the reason I, I'm trying to preach all this together, is I think this is one of the main reasons God recorded this for us in the Bible, is so that you would be motivated by seeing sin's consequences. The consequences of sin motivate holiness. The consequences of sin are one of the things that motivate us to holiness. When we see the dangers that could come from not following the Lord, that is one thing God uses, not the only thing, but it is one thing God uses to point us to the godly path, to the righteous path, to the narrow path of following Him. Sin has far-reaching consequences that stretches into all areas of our lives and we'll see multiplies greatly. And if we understood that, if we saw just how devastating sin can be, that can be just one more thing God uses to steer us back on the path of righteousness. On the near side of sin, before we commit it, when, when it's a temptation to us, when we're considering it, if we knew just how bad it was going to be, that we wouldn't get away with it, that things were ultimately going to be terrible, then that might motivate us to stay on the path toward following God. Now, I just, just a moment ago made a note uh, because I was saving this for the very end, but I already I just feel this theological tension. I want you to just go ahead. So this is, this is my punchline at the end, but I just, I just couldn't help it. So I, I want you to know that if you are a Christian, you, the consequences you may face are not punishment for your sin. And here's why. Christ already paid for it. Christ already paid for it. So that was my punchline at the end. I just couldn't help it. Okay? If you, if you are facing consequences, whether it is because of your sin or some other trial in life, and you are a Christian, the Bible calls that discipline. And by Hebrews 12 as a main section, we studied that in a little bit while last year, God, as our good Heavenly Father, disciplines those He loves. If you are a child of God like David was, we face discipline but not punishment. The wrath of God falls on those who do not repent of their sins and do not know the Lord and are not His children and will pay for them forever. But if you are a child of God as David was, all the consequences, all the struggles, all the trials that comes from our sin or somebody else's, whether, whatever the origin of the, the sin was, God uses it as discipline. So that's what's going on in David's life here. We should read these stories, and as we do, we should, we should cringe at how horrible they are. Somebody stopped me just last week, and they were already ahead of us in the past. They're like, did you see this in chapter? I'm like, I know, I know, it's awful, it's awful. So 2 Samuel 12, where we were last week, David promised, Nathan promised David that because of his sin, the sword would never depart from his house. He was going to, for the rest of his life, face trials and struggles because of what he's done, because of his sin. So these eight chapters together point to what, what that, that's the, the, the um, fallout, all that happens in, in fulfillment of that prophecy. So as we look to the effect of sin, I want you to see first the, sin that, the, the effects that sin has on other people. As we look at the consequences of sin 
and how it should motivate us, we should be aware of how our sin affects other people. Chapter 13 starts by telling us about two of David's sons, Absalom, who will be the key figure for most of this section, and his half-brother Amnon. David has had problems, sin, temptation, when it comes to how he treats women. And we have in this chapter, chapter 13, that the apple has not fallen far from the tree with his son Amnon. Amnon devises a way for him to take advantage of his own half-sister and to violate her, ruining her life and causing traumatic and dramatic consequences for the rest of their lives. His lust, his pride, his hatred is all evil. And Amnon is responsible for his own sin. This is his choice, his decision, and he faces consequences for it. But the thing I want you to notice is that this is a cycle now. It's a habit now inside this one family. The seventh commandment, adultery, was one, not committing adultery, of course. Uh, Amnon was responsible for that. But his father had broken it too. And how often is that the case with sin? That once we've been exposed to it, once we see it, even though I'm confident that if you'd asked Amnon a, a month before he committed sin, Amnon, what's the seventh commandment? He could have probably told you. Surely he'd have known that one, right? Do not commit adultery. And yet, like father, like son, David had committed this sin, and now here is his son committing this sin. Amnon had seen that one way you could get a woman you want is just to take her. That's what his dad had done. And now here is Amnon doing it himself. David doesn't like it. He gets angry, but then does nothing else. He doesn't act. He's a father and he's king, and he doesn't step in and pursue justice. So Absalom, the half-brother, waits a couple years and decides to take matters into his own hands. See, I read that portion where he orchestrates a way to get, his, to get Amnon, his brother, away from King David. And Absalom gives the signal and has Amnon killed, which is the sixth, breaking the sixth commandment, which again is following what his father David had done before. And uh, Absalom had seen David when he doesn't like the way something's going, you just take somebody out. And I'm confident that Absalom knew the sixth commandment, that he should not murder. And yet, he had seen this in his, in his father and decided to take matters in his own hands. Absalom had not fallen far from the tree. He's guilty, he's responsible for his own sin, and yet he follows in the sins of his father. Chapter 15, Absalom begins to plot uh, a conspiracy. And here the sins begin to multiply and spin out of, of order. Well, they're already out of order, but even more so. Uh, he stands at the gate of the city and starts to, to give judgment for everybody. He, he gets a whole bunch of people. He steals the hearts of the men of Israel, read. And four years later, Absalom has now built for himself quite a reputation, excuse, excuse me, excuses himself to a, to a foreign city, gets a bunch of people there to say, Absalom is now king. And so David has to flee Jerusalem because his own son is coming, riding back into the city to take it over. And David is forced out of the city as his son comes in. And the kind of final moment of that, of that rebellion happens when Absalom follows advice from a bad counselor and sleeps with his father's concubines, which fulfills the prophecy David had. So if you're keeping track of the people who have been hurt by David's sin, you could go back and start with Bathsheba and then Uriah 
And then you could go to Tamar and Amnon and Absalom and now ten concubines are like wives that, are, that things are just all falling. All these people are hurt by the sin that started in chapter 11. Each one of them is responsible for their own actions. I'm not saying it's all David's fault, but he put them on the trajectory. And the consequences of sin have continued to multiply and disseminate further and further out as more and more people walk away from the Lord's plan. The consequences of sin should motivate us to say, this isn't good. This isn't good. It's evil, and we should want to follow the Lord. Sin so often, we are deceived into saying, we can get away with this. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't really hurt anybody. But so often, what we think will stay in the dark eventually comes to light. And as it does, we see how many people it affects. It starts with just stealing a little bit of money here and there, and then it takes a little bit more, a little bit more, and eventually we become a thief and we ruin all kinds of friendships and we ruin a business and a job and who knows what, what else. White lies start as just covering up this little thing that's not a big deal, and then you tell another lie, and then somebody else gets brought in on the lie, and lots of people are implicated, and it goes on. Pornography changes not just a, a little bit of things. It changes how you relate to a spouse. It changes how you relate to everybody. From, another, from the other gender, and it continues to fuel and fund a multi-billion dollar industry that's abusing people all around the globe. Sin never stays in private. It never just affects one person. It may lie to you and say it's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody's getting hurt by this, but it always ripples out. It multiplies out and affects other people. Sin has far-reaching effects. We think it's just us. We think it's just a small deal but it almost never is. It starts to multiply. David and Absalom's sin doesn't, start, doesn't stop with just hurting women because now that they have two divided uh, groups, they go to war. And war is always going to get somebody hurt, especially when it's a civil war, especially when it's a, between a father and a son. It promises to be terrible, and it was. David's military leaders keep him back from war, so his life is spared. But Absalom goes to war, and he is the last one to die out of thousands of people in this civil war within the nation of Israel. Absalom is under judgment. He dies in a very shameful way. His hair gets caught in a tree, and he is speared to death. It's a picture of somebody hanging on a tree, a sign of curse in the Old Testament. And as he is, as he is pierced, as he is killed, the battle finally comes to an end but not until after thousands of people have died. So we keep in track of the murders so far, of the people that have died in all this sin. Uriah, Bathsheba's first son, David's two sons now, Amnon and Absalom, and now thousands and thousands of people who had gone to war fighting for one of these two people, either father or son. Sin has a dangerous, far-reaching, far-reaching effect into all kinds of of people. The progression of David's sins to his sons continues to grow and grow. And it seems that they, they, they should have known. They should have known. And yet they continued it. Everybody's at fault here, not just David. Absalom's at fault. Amnon's at fault. So many people are at fault. But what we, what we see so tragically here is that David has put these people on a trajectory in the wrong direction. One of the most far one of the ways that sin multiplies. Uh, the, the most quickly is through intergenerational things that happen cycle after cycle. We, we see this with, with um, 
in, in other ways, like, like poverty tends to be a cycle. Once you're in a, stuck in a cycle of poverty, it's really hard to break that. So it is also with sin. When we set up our families on a trajectory of sin into a lifestyle f- not following the Lord, it is really hard for the next generation to break that cycle. We, we as parents know that so many times the things our kids pick up is not what we teach them, it's what we do. We say so much is more, more is caught than taught. And so our lifestyle, how we live, affects the next generation. You and I pick up things from our parents far more than they intended to, right? And we are passing along, whether you like it or not, far more than you really know. Our practices, our beliefs, our habits, our lifestyles, we're passing those things on to our kids. And they can be really good. And they can be really bad. Parents set a trajectory for their children that could make an impact for generations. We, we feel like our lifetime is so long, but just step back just a little bit, just to the Bible's time period of what we can see here with David. Generations come pretty quickly, and the trajectory of their life begins to multiply. You have two kids, they have two kids, and so on. A few generations later, you got a whole city of people. What trajectory did we put them on? What direction were you sent in? As you think back to what impacted your life and how you got to where you are, what trajectory were you put on? Did you continue in the sins of your fathers or did God intervene? What trajectory are you passing along? How is your life passing along to the next generation? What effects are coming from the way you live? We're probably tempted to underestimate just how far sin has consequences, but it reaches so far, so far in our lives. And unfortunately, well, and it doesn't stop with just just affecting other people. It also, we may be tempted to underestimate just how much it affects us. What we would have liked to have read in 2 Samuel is that David sinned, David repented, he was forgiven, all those are true, and David went right back to being the great king that he was. That part doesn't happen. David is affected for the rest of his life because of the way he acted. His leadership, his decision-making, his judgment, it all seems to be impaired and, and crippled by his sin. Gone are the days, what we read about before, of David having wise, decisive leadership and rule. In these chapters, we have a king who is almost limping along in his role at the helm. After David's son Amnon violated, violated Tamar, we read 2 Samuel 13, 21, When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. And then what? Nothing. He does nothing. He doesn't take the steps of justice that he should have that could have stopped the episode right there. David has a failure to reconcile with Absalom. Absalom murders, flees the city. We read in chapter 14, 39 that the spirit of the king longed to go out out to Absalom. And what did he do about it? Nothing. He didn't reconcile with his son. Eventually he does bring him back, but doesn't even want to see him. He leaves him out living in another place. Two years later, Absalom finally comes to him. He gives him a kiss, and that's it. There's no reconciliation. There's no rebuilding trust. There's no rebuilding relationship. And that's where Absalom's conspiracy begins. Or take another instance. When David is is leaving the, the, the country, and when David is coming back, we have two parallel accounts of people who had previously been very loyal. The first is Ziba, who was Mephibosheth's servant or, or head of his household type person. Ziba brings food to David and blesses him. And David says, where's Mephibosheth? You may remember him, 2 
Samuel 9, that's the son of Jonathan that, God, uh, that David had brought into his table. You getting tired of all these names yet? I've been having to practice these, so I, I know you're working on them. Mephibosheth came and sat at David's table. This is somebody he brought in as a son. So somebody who loved, and David is being sent out to exile. Surely this guy would be loyal to him, right? So David asked about, ask Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says he is hanging back, hoping that he gets to be the next king. And we don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what Ziba says. A couple chapters later, chapter 19, David is returning back from Jerusalem, and both Ziba and Mephibosheth meet David out there. And so now it's kind of this time of reckoning, like, what, why Mephibosheth? Were you for me or against me? And Mephibosheth comes and gives a different story. He says that he was tricked by Ziba to stay in back, that he didn't try to take over the kingdom, that he was tricked, and so that's why he didn't come. Now, the best I can read, and plus a couple commentators you know, agree with this, that most likely Mephibosheth was telling the truth and Ziba was not. But the point of the story is that David doesn't make a decision. He doesn't know. He gave away the land, then he splits it in two. He doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the understanding. He can't figure out who's telling the truth and who's not. This is not the King David we saw before, who was wise and discerning. This is a leader who is limping, a leader who is walking in a way that's not He's hurt, he's hindered by his own sin. A couple more is that David's weakness, uh, you can see it in the military battle. He used to be the guy at the front of the line. He used to be leading his men out to battle. And now over and over again, military decisions are not made by David, but they're made by Joab, his military leader, or by somebody else. One of those uh, is that in the battle with Absalom, David uh, almost loses his kingdom because he had said, don't kill my son. Joab kills him, goes against what, jo- what David had said. But David goes into this deep grief where he can't, thank, he can't even thank his men for defending his life because he's so upset about losing his son. Chapter 20, another rebellion comes, and were it not for Joab, David would have lost the kingdom again. This is a picture not of a, a leader who is on top of the world and taking things by storm and wise and, and seeking, uh, doing everything he's supposed to do. The consequences of sin, of David's sin, have hurt other people, and they have deeply wounded him. Sin has far-reaching effects, and we might be tempted to underestimate just how much it affects other people and how much it affects us. Our character, our wisdom, our discernment, our habits, our practices, none of these things change overnight. But when we sin, we can put ourselves on a path that is unhealthy and unholy. Now, neurobiology might be a field that's about as far from my expertise as imaginable, but I can Google like you can Google, right? Somebody told me this. I had to Google to confirm it, but pathways in our brains are formed when when we have uh, neurons that make these paths. I don't know exactly how that works, but what I do know is that the more that you, you have the same thoughts or the same patterns, the faster those connections are made. So take, for example, riding a bike. The first time you did that, you had to think really, really hard. But if you ride a bike without, now, you can, if you know how to ride a bike, you probably do it without thinking about it. All of us that drive, have been driving for a while, you know what it's like to get in your car, get on the phone, drive all the way home and not even remember how you, did, how you got there, right? The first time you drove a car, you've got to move your foot, your hands, blinkers, windshield wipers, cars around you, mirrors, all that stuff, and all the different things. The way that happens is that in your mind, again, Google tells me, and people smarter than me tell me, is that these pathways are formed over time, and the more you do them, they become these channels that that the neurons go faster and faster. 
You don't have to think about them as much because that pathway is formed. The problem is, that's not just, can, it can be not just in the good direction, but in the bad direction. It's not more, those can become more like a rut than a pathway. Sin can affect our minds, can affect our habits, can affect our bodies in such a way that we can be stuck in a rut that is devastating to our character, devastating to our identity, devastating to the way we live our lives. We think sin is just, oh, just, just one time I just got on a bike, so to speak. But you keep getting on that bike and you get really good at getting on that bike. We think that sin is not a big deal. There's no consequences. But it can be a devastating rut in our life that is going to, make a, going to take a brain transplant, metaphorically, to change. The consequences of sin, we should see just how deep they are so that we would be motivated before we get into sin to instead choose a path of holiness. Count the cost. See the damages. Flee the consequences. Randy Alcorn is a Christian author, and he served in all kinds of different uh, church ministry and different things. And he wrote a, a blog post a number of years ago that was very compelling. Uh, he, he described this really healthy exercise. I, I took him up on this and uh, this week, and I encourage you to do the same. This is what he said. He, years ago, he and a, a friend who was a, a pastor of the church, they both developed a list of all the specific consequences we could think of that would result if we went into a life of immorality. The list were devastating. And to us, they spoke more powerfully than any sermon or article on the subject. Periodically, when traveling or when a time of temptation or weakness would come, we would read through our list again. In a personal and tangible way, it brings home God's inviolate law of choice and consequence. It cuts through the fog of rationalization and fills our hearts with healthy, motivating fear of God. We find that when we begin to think unclearly, reviewing this list yanks us back to the reality of the law of the harvest and the need to both fear God and the consequences of sin. I'm going to give you, he made a long list. He, he put it online and, I, and I, I'm going to read you just a few of them. And I recommend you, recommend you making a list at some point for yourself. Randy Alcorn's list is, is, here's just a few of them. Grieving my Lord, displeasing the one whose opinion matters most, dragging into the mud Christ's sacred reputation, untold hurt to Nancy, my best friend and loyal wife, loss of Nancy's respect and trust, hurt, hurt to and loss of credibility with my beloved daughters, Karina and Angela. Why listen to a man who has betrayed mom and us? Shame and hurt to my friends, especially those that I have led to Christ and discipled. Then he lists their names so he can feel how personal that is. Loss of self-respect, disrespecting my own name, invoking shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself, bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God. And he goes on and on. That's a long list, and it's longer, but it's still not as long as 2 Samuel 13 to 20. And you and I can make a long list too. Over and over again, with this big section of God's word, we're supposed to see sin is devastating. The consequences are far-reaching. 2 Samuel 13 to 20, it's the second time that I've taken a, a big section out of these books. And you may remember, if you're really paying attention, I did it one other time, 1 Samuel 21 to 31, which was a whole period where David was in exile. But that time, the reason he was on the run is that he was an innocent man 
and an enemy, this King Saul, was chasing him into exile. This period is also an exile, but he is no longer an innocent man. He is in the wilderness now, not because of somebody else's sin, but because of his own. Wilderness times in our life, desert times in our life can come sometimes because of something somebody did to us and sometimes because of something we did. If we are contemplating sin, if we are being tempted by it, then we should remind ourselves in that moment of, of how devastating the consequences could be. That can be one of the things that God keeps us from going out into the wilderness, from being led into a place of just dry hardship because of the consequences we see. On the front side of sin, that should be a healthy reminder of the fear of the Lord, to see the consequences and be motivated to holiness. But that being said, what's been weighing on me this whole time is that for many of us, that sin, that, that failure is not just in front of us. It's already behind us. It's something we've already been through. It's something that's already happened to us or that we led ourselves into. Some of you don't relate to David uh, in 2 Samuel 11, having looked at the opportunity to sin. Some of you relate to David in 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, where he's already sinned. So if that is where you are, I want to point you to hope, even in the middle of some tragic, tragic chapters. It can be easy to read these these chapters and be just totally devastated by sin. The consequences of our sin are, are real and devastating, but the cycles can be broken. You can have a brain transplant, so to speak. You can have change. You can have redemption. You and I can't do it, but our God and Savior can. Jesus told us in John 16, He told His disciples, the Holy Spirit of God It's available. So he said in verse 7 of that chapter, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper or the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Sin causes a rut in our lives that is so deep and so deadly. And yet, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's your brain transplant. You are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You are not bound to the sin of your parents. You are not destined to do everything that they set you on the trajectory to do. You can be a new creation. The old can pass away. You can be made new. You can be healed. You, because of the, the, the sin in your life and the sin done to you, you may have some very, very deep scars. But there is a Savior who came and took on some very deep scars so that you could be healed. You can have a new life. 2 Samuel doesn't capture the complete picture of our redemption, because that was still a thousand years away. But it does give us some indicators of what it might be like to be on that path toward hope and reconciliation. David does not have it all together. He does not, even by the end of his life, fully turn things around. But he starts to take some baby steps that direction that point us to hope in the Lord. If you are not just on the front side of sin contemplating it, but if you're on the back side of it having already done it, then like David was in the wilderness, as you run and deal with all the consequences you may be facing, you can learn from these glimmers of hope. So I just want to give you two briefly. Here's my encouragement. When our sin sends us into the wilderness, 
Return to God in humility. Return to God in humility. I mentioned last week in 2 Samuel 11, that David was digging a deeper and deeper hole, and he never inquired of the Lord. We start to get, it's a baby step, but we start to get that heart of inquiry back in 2 Samuel 15, as he's asking for the Lord to help. 2 Samuel 15, 31. With a similar heart just before that, in verses 24 to 26, the priest want to bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And David, with humility, does not want to abuse God or use God like the people did way back in 1 Samuel 4. And he's willing to submit to the Lord's will, whatever it may be. That same humility shows up in chapter 16 when somebody comes out and is cursing him and somebody offers to chop off his head. David says, no, 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 don't do that. Finally, David protected somebody's life. And he says, it may be that God has sent him to curse me because I deserve that. And God's going to bring justice if he needs to bring justice. When in chapter 19, when David is returning back to Jerusalem, that same person who was arguing, who was, who was cursing him, David forgives him. And David goes out of his way to show incredible honor to a man named Barzillai or something like that, who had done incredible things to bless him with overabundance in grace. God, David is far from perfect in these chapters. He continues to sin and mess up, but we begin to see again the, a fledgling version of what he used to be, a man of humility, a man of honor, a man pursuing the Lord. If you're in the wilderness, the wisest thing we can do, and really anytime, wherever you are, the wisest thing we can do is to begin to seek the Lord again. It's, it, you, if you still have breath, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord no matter the wilderness, no matter the desert, no matter the pain, no matter the anguish, no matter the sorrow. Seek the wilderness. Seek the Lord no matter how deep the wilderness seems. And when you do, I, I believe, I trust on God's word that this is what you'll find. Even there in the wilderness, God is faithful. In the wilderness, trust in God's faithfulness. When David is on the run, even when he's dealing with all the consequences of his sin, God is still faithful to him. And it may seem small in the moment, but it is enormous to see that God's hand is with him while he's facing consequences for his own actions. For example, Ziba shows up in chapter 16 with multiple donkeys loaded down for, with food and provisions for him and the hundreds of people going out into the wilderness. In chapter 17, 27 to 29, we'll read of a gracious group of people who provide an enormous feast for him while he's out suffering. That's why we, we had Neely do Psalm 23 today because it sounds a lot like verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. David is on the run from his enemies and he has this incredible feast out in the wilderness. What grace, what provision from the Lord. At one point in Absalom's conspiracy, uh, he gets diverging advice from different counselors. And we read God's hand in this. 17, chapter 17, verse 14. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. My point in giving you all those is that even in the hardship, the wilderness, the suffering, David deserved to be here. And yet who was with him but the Lord? Who was providing for him? Who was guiding him but the Lord? God is faithful, even after his sin to Bathsheba and Uriah and on and on and on. And the way we know it, most of all, is that after all this time of wilderness, you know where David ends back up? He gets to be back on the throne. Are you kidding me? This guy, this guy, after all he's done, 
Yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was a man for God's own heart. Yeah, he did so many good things, but look how bad his sin was. And you may be saying, look at how bad my sin is. Look at all the heart that's been done to me. Look at all the things I've done wrong. David got to come back to the throne. David got to be where he was intended to be. You know why? Because God made him a promise, and God keeps his promises. Do you know that even our sin can't break God's promises? Do you know that? That is, that is so, so counterintuitive and so gracious of the Lord. As I said at the beginning, the hardships that you may face, they are not wrath if you are the child of God. They are discipline. They are ways God is shaping you and molding you. If you have repented of your sin, if you have trusted in Him as your Savior, then all the hardships, all the pain, no matter the origin, is a way for God to be drawing you to Himself, disciplining you and shaping you to walk with Him. For many of us, that may be the most important thing we know today, is that your hardships, your pain, if you know Jesus, are not wrath, they are discipline. Jesus has absorbed the wrath so that we can be children. Today, in the overwhelming abundance of consequences of David's sin and of our own sin, I pray that we would be motivated to holiness, motivated to Christ-likeness, because He has gone to great lengths to show you a better way of living, of not being in the wilderness, but in walking with the Lord in faithfulness. And I pray that we would repent from our sin and follow Him. And if it takes a really long book of the Bible to tell you about it, it's worth it. It's worth it because he's worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness to continue to show us how great you are. Father, we confess that as we come to your word so many times, we we scratch our head at uh, what you are doing and what you were doing then. But God, it is easy enough for us to step back and say you are good. You are gracious. You are so merciful. Father, thank you that for many of us, you have kept us from life-altering sin. And so we, Lord, as we stand on the, the front side of that, we want to see the ways that you have shown us what the consequences might be of that sin. God, use that as one more thing to motivate us to continue to follow you and not fall off the righteous path. Or Lord, we know there are others here, probably even here in the room, who are not on the front side of that, but the back side, like David was. And God, we praise you that even on the back side of life-altering sin, you continue to be faithful. You continue to be gracious. You continue to discipline us and shape us. And so God, we trust you, wherever we may be in life, that you are good and you have offered us grace because of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray today. Amen.